Welcome to this rare interview with two legendary anthropologists, the late Francis Huxley and Jeremy Narby, hosted by Neil Harvey, Bioneer's radio host and consulting producer. We hope you enjoy it. We join the conversation as it begins. There is a particular, particular sensitivity in the United States, I would say, regarding use of psychoactive plants. It's almost a puritanical fear. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the history of humans' interest in pursuing altered states. And I'm particularly interested, why is it in this culture that we seem phobic? Well, Gordon Wasson, when he started, when he, he married a Russian wife, he was the author of that... Uh, Life magazine article. Life magazine article about Cyrus which ruined the career of Maria Sabina, <laughs> the uh, mushroom taker of the little, uh, the little ones. And he was mentioning that in the uh, around the world there are cultures which um, think that every mushroom poisons you just by looking at it, and others who make a great search to find the ones to eat which are delectable. And that it, uh, he was one of those who thought just the sight of one would poison him for the next two days, and his wife, being Russian, was scouring the woods and coming back with baskets full of bolitas and agarics and all kinds of things which uh, no decent uh, Western citizen should even think of. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, he was a fungophobe and he'd married a fungophile. Yeah, and then he became fungophile. So I think that um, the West is pretty well fungophile all around the vegetable spectrum. And if more Americans married Russians, um, things might improve, according to that view. Yes, or Shibibos or something of the kind because they knew even more than Russians. So why are Anglo-Saxon types um, fungophobic? Well, I'm not. Um, I, I like going out into the woods, and actually I think a lot of Anglo-Saxons who go mushrooming, but I think that's only about 100 years old, um, that particular way of looking at funguses and it, thinking about the, them. The Italians and Germans, in, in Europe anyway, and the Swiss, uh, mm. the Spaniards, the French, are mm. all um, mushroom enthusiasts. Yes, I would think it's possibly due to Oliver Cromwell. You know, anyone who can kill a king can kill mushrooms by the millions. Mm. I noticed actually that in England and in this country, people looking at mushrooms kill them with sticks as much as they can. They stamp on them. Very strange, like snakes, you know. Snakes are always deemed to be the horrors of the universe, and so you kill them if you can. The, the other funny thing is that one could think that the white man has a problem with the native's psychoactive plants. Um, but uh, tobacco is the number one shamanic plant uh, in the Americas, and um, white men took it up uh, with great ease in, in Virginia and Jamestown and these places and brought it back to, to Europe and was a very successful uh, uh, substance. And Europeans didn't know, they didn't even have a, a verb for, for to smoke. The, the first uh, Europeans who observed this behavior 
called it to, to drink smoke. The natives drink the smoke because they didn't even have a verb for it. So it's a, a recently picked up behavior. Um, but it's true that what they did to the tobacco was make it less um, intoxicating, less strong, less nicotine. They kind of watered it down and turned it into Virginia tobacco, which contains 18 times less uh, nicotine than the Nicotiana rustica, and then turned it into an industrial product and added all kinds of chemicals to it and made it the number one agent of death in the Western world. Um, so there does seem to be some kind of dis-ease there, but just what it is. Uh, do you have any clues on that? It's, it's all too complicated. <laughs> it's all much too complicated. I mean, it's not as though we don't drink um, vegetable intoxicants in the form of beer and grain spirits and all the rest of it. Um, Aldous Huxley thought that every civilization has its very particular own intoxicant or mind changer. Uh, the West has always gone with, with alcohol. Uh, spruce beer, barley beer, the whiskey, the water of life, the whiskey, and um, wines. And Greek wine was a, a real mixture. But it wasn't just uh, they put resin in it for for one, and they put in every conceivable um, hallucinogenic plant they could think of. I mean poppy and tura, I don't know about, I mean, I couldn't make you the list, but they had about 18 different herbs they would put into a, into a wine, and that's why they always cut it half and half with water, because taken by itself, it was uh, bad news, and people did go nuts. So, but since then, we've lost the Greek habit of putting anything more than hops in our beer. Hops is very nice, it makes you feel sleepy. <laughs> There's something to say about ayahuasca, which is that in its uh, indigenous context in the Western Amazon, it's clear that it's a power tool and that it is uh, not without risks and that people who become involved with it gain uh, vision, uh, knowledge, and power, which is easily abused and which is certainly double-edged. Ayahuasquero shamans are people you, the community wants to keep an eye on. This is not just about uh, healing. It's never just about healing. It always has a dark side to it. And it's not for everybody. Well, uh, the way that the um, Western world seems to have gotten a hold of ayahuasca, and I'm talking about the enthusiasts at this point, is the idea that, oh, well, it contains an ingredient that is um, produced by the human brain, so it's neurocompatible, it comes from a plant, it comes from the rainforest Indians. It's true that it's the concord of uh, hallucinogens, so uh, it's also true that it's um, very user-friendly compared to some of these synthetic uh, drugs, uh, which can be, frankly, neurotoxic. But it is not true that it's um, innocuous, and there are people who drink it and who get into very deep water and who have their, their world views changed, whereas they didn't think uh, they weren't even looking for that. And they come out of it um, disturbed and changed. And, and anyhow, 
half the experience is who administers it and in what circumstances and how the, the brew itself is prepared. And none of these basic public safety questions which should concern us, I think, uh, we friends of healing the rainforest, indigenous people, respect of their knowledge and so on, it's just basic ABCs of, about ayahuasca which um, I don't see many Western uh, ayahuasca enthusiasts um, giving any time of day to. And so what this does is it opens up uh, a whole uh, side that can be criticized by the enemies of drugs. And they say, you know, this is crazy. This is a powerful hallucinogen. You can't just give it out to any old buddy in any circumstances. And they're right. You know, and so if there was more self-criticism in the ayahuasca-using community and more above-the-board um, well, discussion uh, of these problems and bringing out front, you know, we should not be afraid of giving fuel to the enemies of drugs by putting on the table the, the cases of people who have been changed by it and, and who have had difficulties with it. You know, and because it's so polarized, especially in this country, the war on drugs, those who are friends of ayahuasca often know of problems but dare not speak because they don't want to uh, be seen as encouraging the, the, the other side. And that's simply crazy because this is a, a powerful drug and what indigenous societies indicate is that you've got to learn how to use it. You have to be aware of the dark side of the double-edged tool. Otherwise, you're, you're going to get into trouble and cause trouble. So um, I think it would be uh, good if one could have more discussions about this without paranoia and with only uh, an affection for uh, the truth of things. There are a lot of people who, whose uh, antecedents I know nothing about coursing around in this country that I heard of in the last six months. And um, what they bring and what they say is ayahuasca. I don't know what's in those bottles. I don't know at all. I don't know if it's... Uh, when it was brewed, if it's uh, now fermenting and producing things it shouldn't, and uh, whether it's actually made out of the regulation plants, if, is it laced with um, deteriorated juices, which give you the first buzz of intimation that you're going somewhere, but end up by making you feel pretty, pretty nasty, if it's in quantity, very... Uh, very off your head and sideways. Mm -hmm. oh, I don't know what you do about this. Should the Brazilian government have a have a ayahuasca um, bureau in which every single bottle exported has the government's stamp of approval? <laughs> well, a, a, some kind of regulation. It should uh, be some kind welcome. of regulation, but how when this just comes in an old Brazilian beer bottle? Well, I, How do you know what's in it? I welcome the uh, French wine critique uh, or French restaurant critique mode where you, you have outside um, people who come in and they go the rounds and they visit mm. the different um, people who propose uh, the, the vine extract and mm -hmm. um, um, criticize them openly and give them points and uh, keep an eye on them. That is what uh, traditionally the role of the community is um, for a shaman, is to, to there is uh, no shaman without a community. In the, the definition of what a shaman does, it's a person who, by profession and in the name of the community, communicates with the spirits of nature. Mm -hmm. And the community's role is to keep an eye on, on that person. 
And so now we live in a world where a community has changed into this global, uh, multifaceted, uh, pluri-individualistic scene where everybody's doing whatever they want. We need some culinary critiques to come around and and uh, make things a bit more safe for people. Because if there's a restaurant that's dishing out unhealthy food, people should know about it. It seems to me uh, some of what you're talking about is, is the relationship, the lack of relationships with the plant, with the source material, uh, even cigarettes. You're, you're actually dealing with white cylinders that you light up and you ingest, and uh, it's, it, people are not associated with the plant, really. And, and it's... It's that disassociation. There's such the culture is so disassociated with where these things come from, and so there's there's no culture around around it. It must be nice to be in a Shipibo community where you go visit your shaman, and uh, first thing in the morning there he is with all his children and his wife or wives and relatives, and there's a big pot being bubbling over, and they look after it all day long, and you just sit around watching this process, realizing that your vibrations are all being boiled in with this. <laughs> and he's obviously taking great care to make the whole thing a uh, very good brew. And if he's a good cook, but um, how does one know offhand? Yes, there should be. I, th I think it'll take about 50 years before there are enough... Uh, Ayahuasca inspectors with mm. a good nose, you know. Mm. This is a sort of 98 vintage, yes. The Pucalpa 98. Well, I would submit that Pucalpa is the Bordeaux of the Ayahuasca leagues, but. Um, oh, yeah. Um, meanwhile, um, it's true, I think, that uh, if one is going to be involved with psychoactive plants, um, the idea of knowing the plants one ingests by, uh, for example, um, cultivating them works uh, with certain plants because they're um, relatively easy um, to use, tobacco or hemp or, um, and even psilocybin mushrooms can be picked if you live in certain areas and can be uh, used with uh, prudence and you can figure out you don't really need uh, a guide if you're a grown-up and you know how to read a few books. Uh, though, of course, one always wants to be careful with these substances, even if they uh, seem to be relatively light. But something like ayahuasca, uh, in my view, is deep water, and even if I knew how to brew it, I wouldn't want to take it without uh, a maestro who really knows how to administer it. And usually knowing how to administer it and, and sing along with it also involves knowing how to brew it, because brewing it is an art which involves singing on the brew and spending hours with it. So I think the um, then if you're really interested in ayahuasca, it seems to me that the best way to go about it is to go on a quest and take enough time to and go to ayahuasca territory and ask around and who's a good maestro and uh, ask the, to see how the maestro prepares the brew and, you know, actually take it seriously enough. If you're really interested in French wine, well, go to Bordeaux and hang out and see how it's done. Go at harvest time and understand what you're drinking. When you say administer, that also means uh, seeing people in the various throes of the experience and knowing how to take them out of one bad place. 
Well, it's the the whole. The, the, I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole episode. Because uh, yeah. actually, yeah. we have a rather poor view as to uh, what this could be about. But it, it involves um, uh, preparing the body through diets, firstly, and then showing up uh, at sessions. In these sessions. Uh, use perfumes for example there's a whole impact of smell on modified consciousness or the sound of human voice uh, just singing and submitting yourself to sitting in the dark for hours and and listening i think it's something that um, one needs to prepare for what evidence do we have for um, the benefits to community that individuals um, are having these experiences that they're that they're partaking in these experiences what kind of benefits do you have in mind? Well, does it enhance the community? Does it does it make it thrive? Um, does it make people render the community a more cohesive, loving, uh, creative, um, happy community? Um, you know, I think of Western culture and limited experience of people who, uh, in college, you know, get wasted on this and wasted on that, and uh, I, I don't see much positive coming out of that. Uh, there might be one in a thousand or something who has a some some sort of glimmer of a, awakening of some kind that maybe moves them in a what I would call a positive direction, something that's more mm. benevolent. But, but a lot of times it's kind of self-indulgent, you know, blow your mind because mm. uh, you're, what else, you know, what Who better else... What's your observations on that? Well, I think it depends on the, the places, the societies, and the time. There are certainly examples um, among the, the Jivaro, for example, um, uh, of societies where 75% of the men use ayahuasca, and it fuels uh, paranoia, violence, uh, sorcery, and all kinds of negative things. And, and these these men are almost permanently under the influence of uh, strong uh, hallucinogens and they've got shotguns mm -hmm. and they're going at each other's throats mm -hmm. and no in uh, it's just obvious if you have a uh, society like that and you spike it with strong hallucinogenic uh, plants it's not going to get any better surprise surprise so these are double-edged tools once again and they, they can be used for healing and enlightenment and creating group mind, for example. Traditionally, I think that um, out, way out in the forest, uh, if you are a, a hunting, gathering uh, community, to get the hunters, for example, in, into group mind and working together and listening to the forest and knowing where the animals are going to be, um, it can be a, a useful tool, which also goes to show that it can be used for mind manipulation, which is why one wants to... Um, worry about it when, when religious groups get a hold of it and, and so on. You really can influence other people's psyches and you can use it to get people out of depression but you can also use it to put them into depression. So I think uh, you can find a, the whole gamut of what you, you can do with these things. Yes, I heard of a band of fundamental Christians down in the south of New Mexico who were taking uh, LSD once a week or so, that was uh, 20 years ago, and um, they were getting very unpleasant in their dealings with their own members, accusing each other of witchcraft and exorcising them forcibly and making them do things they shouldn't have done. But isn't that live? <laughs> no one always thought that taking mescaline or LSD was clear out the last remnants of 
ill will, hatred and uh, ambition and uh, egotism, but it's not really like that just by itself. And ayahuasca does seem to be the most complicated of all the ones that we know of at, at the moment. I think if there's a in simple description of it, it's that it's an amplifier. Mm. And so it, it uh, amplifies what's already there. And if somebody mm. is an um, ego-powered, um, power-hungry type <coughs> and starts guzzling ayahuasca, uh, I think it is quite possible that it would just make it worse. Yeah. We're here at the Bioneers Conference, and that's an ecological conference uh, working toward uh, restoration of natural systems and recreating communities and culture, uh, earth-centered culture. And talk about how this conversation relates to that, to uh, you know, environmental activism and such. Well. Um Centrally, what um, shamans uh, have been involved with, uh, as they put it themselves, is communicating with the spirits of nature in different ways and going so far as to turn into jaguars in their minds, identifying with animals, considering plants to be teachers. No kidding. Not kidding, actually considering plants to be teachers and ingesting them and then in their minds uh, seeing information and learning from the plant and having a, an I-thou relationship with the plant's spirit and talking with landscape and with entities like the owner of animals about to what extent when the human community can use uh, animals for, for meat, just for starters. So... It's about negotiating with uh, the rest of nature for human use of nature. Well, surely that's central to what interests bioneers. And it also does, uh, they, they also have prime importance in sorting out the, um, the bad manners of their, of their own people, of their own group. By bad manners, I mean um, breaking the rules, especially when they're rules of taboo rules, and getting rid of ill will between people, healing those who have uh, succumbed to ill will or whatever it is. I mean, they have to. With epidemic disorders, it does become rather a difficulty for them. But on the small scale, the uh, ill will does produce an enormous variety of bodily disorders, of illnesses, and that's also one of their prime functions. So if you had... And then, of course, there's news from nowhere or from over the border, which uh, is always very interesting to listen to. So they have three or four sort of ma major functions, and I quite agree if, they, if um, Bioneers actually owned... Uh, a forest estate where they could boil down redwoods or something and take an intoxicating draft <laughs> <laughs> and have a community to look after and to keep in order, you know. It would be a most interesting experiment in, because a shaman is a man of really, or he can be, should be, a man of enlarged 
faculties and capacities and he can do things that other people just cannot like a court jester who can afford to speak the truth because you know he's only an asshole <laughs> and a shaman is not only an asshole but he's a god's eye so it's all very complicated you can't get around shamans at all easily <laughs> I mean, we talk about activism. Their front is long, and uh, there are all sorts of different kinds of activism. Mm. You know, people can uh, make quilts as part of their activism or uh, teach their children in a way that's activism. But there's also the, you could say, the inner activist or the shaman activist. Is that what you're talking about, kind of? Is... Yes, well, that takes quite a, an education. Mm. Um, you were asking me earlier this year. Uh, when does a shaman really mature? 20, 30, 40, 50? We thought about 45, didn't we? <laughs> he's sort of 50, he's sort of still learning as he goes, if he's any good. You know, there's, it's just like any profession um, amongst doctors. I had a wonderful family doctor when, um, found by my mother, and I remember when he came he came round just for a cup of tea. He happened to be in the in the district, and he popped around to say hello. They were, we were friends, and he opened the door and stood there for a moment, looking at my mother, and said, "You've got amoebic dysentery," and so she had. That's a doctor who can uh, diagnose at twenty paces. Oh, was I impressed by him. <laughs> Instead of doctors around where I come from now in New Mexico, we said, oh, well, yes, I, your blood counts down. We shall have to take every kind of test. It'll cost you $3,000, and we may not be able to tell the answer in the end. <laughs> yeah, that's the other kind of doctor. <laughs> and even, even where they have no such um, technical devices, to, you always find, you know, for... One really good doctor or shaman, there are four or five uh, alpha minus shamans, you know, who are, they're, they're good. I mean, they're better than seeing a beta plus who just, uh, and then all the ones in the bottom row, you know, charlatans galore, sort of doling out futile advice and <laughs> telling you to go to 11 step programs to get your 12th or something, you know. <laughs> So there are very few really good uh, shamans in the world. Yeah. And even with them, you never quite know whether they're, what they're about to do to you. You know, Can you really trust them? Some of them you can't trust. Are they trust. serious? Yes, they're really serious. Because if you, you might find they're doing something. Well, as every uh, shaman I know and, uh, and person, uh, people in that uh, league, they say, you know, well, we can't operate with the world as it is without using our left hand as well as our right. The right hand is doing good, and the left hand is having to do ungood, do bad to certain people, to take their bad away from them and convert it to something better. Sometimes it gets a little um, egotistic and start doing bad because it's more fun than doing good. The, so the whole uh, thing is... Uh, ambiguous brokers. <laughs> yes. But aren't we all? I mean, when you're in this world and you meet a lawyer, you never know just how he's going to run with your case. Lawyers are ambiguous brokers. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> or politicians, for that matter. Mm. Or anthropologists. Yeah. Or, or, or anthropologists. journalists. 
You know, we're only human. We have to realize we're only human, and we make every kind of disastrous mistake and marvelous uh, triumph, and uh, hovering between these two extremities. There are people who have a gift for doing the best as often as possible, and others who just do it routine or um, to earn a, an unsavory living. So really, when you talk about shamans, it's no other than talking about poets or journalists or politicians or anyone else. There are some you can trust and, and admire, and others you shouldn't be seen dead with. Or if you are seen dead with, it's hard luck. <laughs> and as for these drugs, well, they try, as Jeremy was saying, they charge you up according to your, your will and, your, and the curious shadows that lurk in the joints of your bones. It's, it's dreadful to think there's no easy way of achieving enlightenment. <laughs> oh, no, don't tell me that. <laughs> no, it's all supposed to be uh, goodness and light, isn't it? Um, the, the path to enlightenment. No, monsieur. My experience has been that knowledge uh, is something one gains with difficulty. And uh, easy knowledge is almost a contradiction in terms. Not quite, because sometimes it does kind of fall out of the sky when you're not expecting it mm. and onto your head. You can't quite believe it then, can you? Yes. It's too good to be true. <laughs> like falling in love. Oh. <laughs> so it's uphill most of the time with yeah. the odd meteorite, the mm. path to knowledge. And I think it's true um, on the science side of things and on the shaman side of things. And just on the human trying to get through the day side of things. I guess why? Why should it be hard? Well, I think no one can actually come up with an answer that everybody will agree with, but uh, there are several interpretations that, uh, that are possible, one of which is that it, it, Inasmuch as there's a, an intelligence in nature, it might be in its interest to make knowledge um, something that one has to work at getting, like a safety mechanism. You can't just any old buddy um, have it. You, you have to deserve it, because once you have it, it is power, and you can change things. And you want those who have it to be aware of... Um, what they can do with it so as not to abuse it. So knowledge really is a, a tool in the world and a, a fountain of, uh, of power and, and potential. So it has to be somewhat difficult. But I think it, this particular brand is difficult because outside of the exact sciences, everything worth saying has to be said by indirection. Metaphor. Metaphor. And you can't get over that. You can't speak directly about anything without it immediately losing its nature and becoming something else. It's most interesting. Because the essence of things is ambiguous, precisely. Well, it's so, so, yes. It's, if you name it down to a single side, you're already misnaming it. So mm -hmm. it's always like and not like. Mm -hmm. So the indirect naming... Or, or a metaphor 
is the only correct way of naming it. I think that's the crucial difficulty in the end, is how you become knowledgeable in yourself of the things you have knowledge of or you've learned. How, how do you compose them into mm. a into something that can walk about on two legs and mm. and do things spontaneously out of the blue, extempore, you might say. Mm. That's quite an art. I mean, when one sees beginners in psychoanalysis, for instance, man, they're half out of their heads with lust for labeling other people with all the disorders that they suffer from themselves. <laughs> and they can only see because uh, someone's doing it outside. Yes. So, I mean, we're just made that way. I think that's the reason. And it takes a lot to learn things about the other world, the world this world, outsiders, so that it uh, collaborates with ourselves. The intelligence of nature seems to be rather different, however, because um, uh, it seems to be mutual. Well, uh, we are products of nature, and we are somewhat intelligent. And so we are intelligences inside nature, looking at nature and seeing if we can see intelligence. So we're also looking at ourselves, and we are also nature looking at itself through us. So And in us, I would hope. Uh, probably. That's my take, I, I think. Mm. So it's mirrors all the way down, down into our cells and back up and out through our eyeballs and colliding head-on with the world that we see. Oh, and it's mirrors. A, it's not mirrors. It can't be mirrors made of glass. How awful. You know, that's... It, it really makes one feel entirely schizoid to be made of mirrors. Well, there, there is <laughs> something... I would like to be un, made out un, of a kind of sentient Polaroid, the, I think. The, if, you look, <laughs> if you look at um, uh, an amoeba yeah. um, or a slime mold, a slimy cell uh, in a maze capable of computing the, the, the solution, the shortest path, but without a brain... There's just this cell there, but it's smart enough to know which is the, the shortest road. Probably smarter than I am. I'm not very good in, in, in mazes. The slime mold seems almost smarter than I am in, in that situation. So I look at it with my human brain, and I see its slimy uh, intelligence. Uh, we do look back at each other in mm. a kind of a, a distorted mirror scene where we don't really recognize each other. Uh, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around what amoeba intelligence might consist of, and I have the impression that it's mutual. And so far, I've been trying to um, understand the intelligence in nature by poring over it from all angles for the last uh, 18 months, and I can't say that I'm much more advanced in um, feeling that I can name it. I've been looking at it and, and sniffing it and thinking about it and writing about it, but finally, it's something that is almost unnameable. And uh, I think for that reason, because it's difficult to separate my own mind from it. It's like it's difficult to do brain surgery on yourself. But I'm working on it. Do you have any advice? Um, oh, yes, go native. It's like the Taoist... Uh, advice for doing uh, 
Chinese landscape painting. You go and walk around the mountain and you find a place to sit and you just sit there all day and then you go and have supper and then you come back next morning and you weather's changed a bit and you sit and you look at everything over and over again. You do this for about five weeks. Then you go home and you paint the mountain because it's now infused in your sensibility. Mm. That's what I mean by going native. Mm. Did I tell you I met this French scientist who um, told me that crocodiles didn't dream and um, he'd run different animals into... Uh, these brain wave machines and found no REM activity in crocodiles. Um, and I had a hard time believing it. What do you think? I heard this news the other way around, just last week, that crocodiles do dream. Ah. You, sh you have little REM blips. So is this, is this a piece of urban mythology gone wrong? Perhaps. <laughs> I think we need to look into this. Uh, and. You know, because swimming with ducks is one thing. <laughs> Hanging out with crocodiles yeah, well, and finding whether they, they dream or not <laughs> is another one. Your investigations into intelligence, animal intelligence, plant intelligence, and you're describing uh, this, this series of mirrors, just mirrors going back and everywhere. And it makes me think of, um, and I associate this with Buddhist a meditation, uh, Sogchen or something, where the meditator then comes to a point of stillness and asks a question, well, who's really meditating here? And pops that question and then plums for an answer, not very rigorously, just kind of looks, opens to an answer of who's there. And people report back, you find, you, you drop back, drop back, drop back to a place of non-duality, a place where you Who's asking the question? Well, really, nobody's asking the question. There's, there's nothing there. And how does that relate to your the mirrors and? Well, I think it's also important to get away uh, from a, a too ego-centered uh, uh, approach. Well, we we are uh, somewhat locked into our skulls. That's our um, fate for the moment. But nevertheless, the whole point is that uh, there are other skulls, other beings. Um, some beings don't even have skulls. And uh, they all seem to be made of cells just like me, uh, that have DNA and proteins just like me, use the same signaling pathways, so on. And um, we do seem to be um, cousins all the way down to the invertebrate worms and the unicellulars and the bacteria. In fact, we carry billions of bacteria around inside us and if we didn't we'd be dead and so on you know just what is but we talk here we are talking into microphones and uh, giraffes and bananas don't though we share many genes so what am I to think of them if I'm just a materialist it's pretty obvious how uh, kin related they are on a physical chemical level we're the same stuff but uh, mind-wise, empathy-wise, intelligence-wise, there is an otherness in nature. It doesn't talk back at us in, in English, in American English even. So we're stuck for, the, to, for interviewing amoebas, for example. It's a, it's a bit rough. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and uh, I wouldn't want to claim to be a spokesperson for the, the invertebrate world, uh, for example. And in fact, an uh, insect mind is a rather alien kind of uh, setup. You know, uh, I wouldn't yes, want to be a, an ant. 
Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, oh, you're praying, I'd, ra- I'd rather be a free-roaming enzyme. You know, I mean, uh, sure, just a well, little that's a cell. That's a good name for you. <laughs> in a body, you know, and, and go around to trouble spots and, and gauge yeah. them by myself. And if it needs some uh, accelerating some reactions, yeah. putting some energy in, and as soon as it's, it's done, head off somewhere else in my patrol car. You know, um, sort of biospheric free agent uh, enzyme Narby reporting. Um, but an ant, no thanks. You know, it has a kind of uh, alien, militaristic kind of... Uh, Sexless life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds yeah. just like Los Alamos. <laughs> so. <clears throat> well, you see, I think it's pretty clear that uh, humanity is in kindergarten when it comes to um, understanding nature, understanding itself. You know, the basic questions of who we are, where do we come from, what are we doing here, and where are we going, you know, haven't changed. No one knows, really. There's um, so much mystery, it's not funny, and the more just science discovers, the more mysterious it gets. Um, and yes, probably, trying to think out the kinship we have uh, with nature, for example, by blending the best of science with the best of indigenous knowledge, one can start to open up some kind of um, common ground of... Um, understanding from which to ask questions and I, I think it uh, this teaches a, a kind of um, agnosticism or, or openness to, to mystery and certainly uh, the desire to run away from certitudes and, and to just start uh, trying to uh, see the limitations of the, the categories that got us here you know I mean rationalism was pretty good rocket fuel but uh, it's smelling a bit old you know, and the old dogma that uh, that science had the cornerstone of the scientific method, according to Jacques Monod, who said this in 1970, is the idea that nat- nature is objective and that uh, natural beings are to be considered as objects without intention. Well, there are just too many ants who cultivate mushroom gardens with antibiotics or bees who handle abstract concepts or crows who use tools with standardized hooks or dolphins who recognize themselves in mirrors or parrots that say what they mean for this to be uh, of any use now. Now that was the golden age of science. Uh, chance and necessity. Yeah. Über alles. Yeah. yeah. A very fine book. But he did uh, bring in the poetics of the situation by the back door without even an introduction, suddenly he said, of course, this means <laughs> that what the kinds of things you're thinking about, uh, just open this little door and they will come in there without introduction or explanation, but they're all part of it. <laughs> well, he, he, said about, he said about bees, they may seem to act with purpose, but we now know with certitude that their behavior is purely automatic. What is the difference, I wonder? <laughs> Automatic bees. <clears throat> so after the rational, where are we heading, or where do we want to go? Back to mind-altering and... <laughs> well, considering that, uh, I wonder how much of our life is made out of uh, a sense of either accomplished or, or disappointed mutuality with the rest of the world. Mm. And we have this thing which is always looking to be 
part of something, to be completed by something else, mm -hmm. and then to move on and find more completions everywhere. When one enters then into a wholehearted mutual relationship, the um, amount of knowledge that comes to one is quite staggering because uh, it seems to be all part of oneself, though it comes from, comes from over there, maybe. So I think it may be just an, uh, a dropping this word consciousness, which I think is being misused and has had its innings, thinking in uh, using another vocabulary to, uh, to get hold of uh, what it is we're missing. I think our vocabulary at this moment and the terms we use uh, stop us from actually imagining any other way of doing it than the way we are. So how we start a new poetic, which is also exact, is, I think, is the, the crux of the matter. Just as, I mean, the whole history of anthropology goes from anthropologists going off and seeing savages doing things that they wouldn't do in their right minds ever, you know, and then after 200 years they come back again and they say, well, actually, that sounds like rather fun to do. And then some of them do turn native. I've known, I've heard of two or three anthropologists turning native and suddenly they're doing what they had... Uh, uh, always wanted to do, and anthropology was the way the way they got financed in order to find somebody who would do just what they wanted to learn about. <laughs> Meanwhile, this other way of knowing about things, which is n not the terminology, well, it's another terminology, it's another, another reasonableness mm. with other terms. I think this must be, in the end, uh, the... Um, aim for any new attempt at uh, solving this, your question. Yes, and I think that moving beyond um, rationalism involves um, firstly realizing that rationalism, rationalism set itself up as the only legitimate way of knowing. Moving beyond it consists of looking for a common ground for human knowledge, which would accommodate several ways of knowing and allow them to be uh, compared and uh, used together. Mm -hmm. And I think that a common ground for human knowledge would reconcile control and respect, microscopes and modified consciousness, uh, scientific texts and oral expertise, detachment and emotion, matter and spirit, among others. But it's uh, not going to be easy to set it up. I think that um, learning to work with uh, other systems of knowledge is like learning uh, another language. Mm. And so bicognitivism is like uh, bilingualism. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work, but ultimately rewarding. And what you get is another way of uh, looking at the world. Mm. So beyond rationalism, lies um, plurilingualism, multifaceted, combining differences and uh, synthesizing them into something better, more complex, like a Swiss army knife. Oh, and there's one thing which I'm sure that we should uh, think about sometime, is that the, our dependence on reading a text with our eyes, and it's all in the alphabet, 
stops us from actually hearing what other people say. I had a terrible experience after my first bout of field work. I got away from uh, the place and I started reading my journals and they were I threw them away. They were so awful. It was always it was very uncomfortable for for me having to write in a notebook in a hammock with a piece of pencil and I used to get writer's cramp, I remember. And uh, so I only got the meaning down, but not the words in which the meaning was told me. And I thought, I've actually never remembered the words in which meanings are told. Mm -hmm. And so I trained myself for, for uh, the next six months to listen to the words and not bother about the meaning, because I could always find the meaning in the words, but I can't find the words in the meaning. And um, I think anyone who's been over-educated with textbooks should take five years off and um, just use his ears to remember with and not his eyes. It makes any good. The shift in one's uh, awareness is very considerable. Well, should we go for that beer? Shall we go for that beer? That's what I call a piece of oral tradition. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you both for this time. Really appreciate it.